Good morning, everyone. If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Today we'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. It can be found on page 577 on the blue Bibles that are located in front of you. If you do not have a Bible of your own, you are more than welcome to take one of these homes with you. Again, we're reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Thus says God's word. Join me in prayer so that we will be receptive to the words that we have just heard. Father, we thank you so much for your beautiful instruction, the illumination that it gives, the strength of the truth of these words, God. This is not a truth. This is the truth. And we thank you for that. We thank you that it's been given to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word and that if you had not, none of us would have a clue who you were. None of us would have a clue what you did, what you demanded of us or what you required of us. And so, Lord, we thank you today for this word. And we ask that you would just help us to be in tune, help our hearts, as, as the writer says, as Paul says, not to be haughty or proud, but to be humbled before you, Lord God, and, and, and uh, have a heart that says whatever you ask, God, whatever you ask. And so, Lord, we, we just pray that you would just bless our ears to hear, bless my lips, my tongue to speak, and, God, uh, keep both both the hearing and the speaking from being corrupted by our own sinful flesh. But uh, we ask for the empowerment and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to guide us through these truths. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So glad you're here this morning. Um, I have just a couple of things that I want to share with you before we get started. Um, number one, uh, remember... Bill and Kristen, we prayed for him last week, and um, uh, Bill goes into surgery tomorrow morning, I think he said at 5.30 a.m., so sometime today, just take time to pray for them, and uh, that, that he would come through that uh, quickly, and, and recover quickly, and that God would be with him. Second of all, last week we took the missions offering, and I always like to tell you how we did. Um, we asked you for, that we, we said we needed to raise around $3,000, and you guys came out and gave about 4200 So the praise God for that. Um, I, I signed the checks this week. They've already been sent. Our missionaries are fully funded for another quarter. The overage will be applied toward next uh, quarter's uh, missions offering. And I just encourage you, um, if you, if the Lord leads you to do this, one of the things Ginger and I do is we just have a, a, a much smaller month, or I'm sorry, weekly uh, automatic 
donation that we give to missions so that when the quarter rises up, we don't, we don't have to come up with a, a much larger offering. So if you, you can do that on the church center app. If you guys want to, want to think about that, that's great. Um, and then lastly, I just want to, uh, very, on a very personal level, I want to welcome James and Kayla Salsman to our services today. Some of you will remember them. James is one of the original guys at Northridge Life. He, uh, uh, he showed up. I think it was the first Sunday we were open. Is that right? And, um, and he was just such a blessing to us. And then he had to go and get married and move to the Metroplex. So, <laughs> but he, uh, and he's got a lovely wife, Kayla, there. And, and, uh, and so we, we were just so surprised and glad to see them visit today. So welcome to you guys. We're glad you're here. Um, so today, we're going to be concluding a loosely connected sermon series. In other words, usually what I do is I'll take a passage or a book and I'll go through it line by line. And there are some things that I wanted uh, to see, for you to see, um, that would hopefully help you to understand grace better. The goal was for us to actually contemplate the goodness of God, to contemplate gr- the grace of God, especially as it is pr- uh, perfectly presented for us in Christ Jesus. And this led us to consider what Christ requires from us and how that manifests under both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we began uh, two weeks ago by seeing how Christ, uh, by his own holiness, by his own perfection, by his own obedience, has slain our enemies, and our enemies being sin, our, our enemies being death, our enemies being Satan or the devil. And he's slain those enemies, and from the very places that once represented their power, he has offered us an abundance of sweet grace from his very own hands. And then last week... We looked at a, so oftentimes for many of us, a troubling passage from the Old Testament that mentions curses, and we kind of expanded that to look at the curses of the Old Testament, and there's plenty of them, and th- those that were threatened against covenant breakers the, and unbelievers, and particularly we looked at the one mentioned in Malachi 3.9, when, when God has commanded that, that they are, that, or said rather, they are robbing him and saying that they should bring all their tithes and offerings into the storehouse, and he says, because you haven't, you're under a curse. And we saw, though, that through the gospel in Galatians 3, that Christ became a curse for us. Man, not a single amen on that. Let me say that again, because I don't think the mic is working. Eddie, can you make sure? I said Christ became a curse for us. And so that we can be fully delivered from the curse of the law by our faith in him. Man, what a relief. Praise God. But we can say, or can we say, that since the curse has been, that we, the, the curse, by the way, that we so richly deserved, that since that curse has been placed on Christ, can we say, now, praise God, there's no specific commands or requirements that are imposed upon us through the gospel. Well, of course we can't say that. But there's a difference, there are key differences between Old Testament commands and laws requirements, and New Testament commands, laws, and requirements. And let me list a few of those differences. As I said last week, the Old Covenant, the Moses, uh, you know, what Moses wrote beginning in Genesis, all the way to what the prophets wrote ending in Malachi, it functioned on the principle of this. Do this, and don't do that. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And if you obey that perfectly, not, not pretty good, but perfectly, you will be blessed. That's a, that's a great promise of all the blessings that would come, but I just wonder if there's anyone here who might have been doing pretty good with that. Because I have not. I don't know if you have, 
But I, uh, so what I found is while the promises of that covenant are great, the, the requirements of that covenant are devastating because I can't seem to keep them no matter how hard I try. But see, in the new covenant, Christ is such a beautiful thing. Christ has completely fulfilled the entirety of the law for us. All of it. Every jot and tittle, as I said last week, as the, the New Testament words, it, everything is fulfilled for us. And so that the blessings that come to us result from His obedience. And they are never dependent on our own obedience. Now, thank you. Now we trust it for, for, to be, to live a blessed life on any level. We trust in the efficacy of His work and not on our performance. And what a relief that should bring us. Every good gift of God is now of grace, and it can't be considered a wage that we can somehow earn. So when we see a command in the New Testament, or a law in the Old Testament, and, and, and we see that and we're internally compelled to obey. We, we, we recognize it rightly as the word of God and we think I've got to respond rightly to this word that I have heard. Our motivation to obey, Old Testament, New Testament, should be different than it used to be under the law. See, under the law, we were compelled by the fear of death that was so often threatened against lawbreakers like us. Man, if you don't believe me, read through the book of Leviticus. And, and circle or highlight in your Bibles how many times the things that we've all done are threatened with the death penalty. Did you know, did you know that, that in the, under the, uh, uh, the old covenant that speaking to your parents with a sassy mouth demanded the death penalty? How many of you wouldn't be here today? Thank you for your honesty. How many of you would not be here today? Or, or parents, how about you learn, help your kids to memorize that and then just walk around bouncing a rock in your hand if they, you know, if, uh, that might, that might give you a little more legal power over your children. I'm kidding. Visitors, I am kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, so the, the fear of death, often threatened against lawbreakers like us, was, was the, 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 Showed us not, it wasn't just because God was mean back then, it was showing us the purity of His holiness. The God's holiness is unrelenting. God doesn't grade on a curve. God has two grades, perfection and not perfection. And that's it. That's your only options. But see, this is the beautiful thing. And many of you call yourselves Christians, and I believe you are, I'm not questioning that, and, and you're, you, you understand on a very rudimentary level that you are under grace, but you're still trying to keep the law. But under grace, you're not motivated by those fears, you're not motivated by those anxieties, you're motivated by love. I'm not scared that God's going to kill me if I mess up. I'm motivated by love and gratitude to God because He saved me. Not so He will save me, but because He has saved me. That's my motivation to obey Him and to please Him. I don't obey Him to escape His judgment, but to demonstrate my desire to be pleasing to God out of love. But we're still left with a few questions, aren't we? If laws like those we mentioned last week of the tithe, you know, it's a hot button issue. If they've been fulfilled in Christ, then what does Christ require of us? 
those of us, that is, that live under grace. How do we calculate, using the Malachi 3 language, how do we calculate what we owe God? We don't want to be guilty of robbing him, as the text says. So how do we calculate the right thing? If we're motivated by love, this will not be a passing thought. It will be a pressing concern for us, right? We want to know what our obligation to God is. Well, thankfully, the New Testament is not at all silent on this point. It doesn't leave you to guesswork. But the answer to the question, as we live now under grace, might surprise you. And what I share today, I just want to point this out, because can I be honest with you about my own insecurities? Anytime there's visitors here, and we have a lot of people here that are that haven't been here either before or for a long time, and I, like every other preacher in the world, I hate talking about money, okay? And, and for those of you that hear it, it says, oh, here he is. Here's the preacher going to talk about money. That's all they ever care about. Not at all. If you heard the last hundred sermons I preached, I probably didn't do any one about money. But what I share today, I want to point out, even though we're using the same context as we did last week in Malachi 3, it's going to apply to every aspect of your observance of God's law. But we're going to focus on the stewardship of our resources since that's how we framed this discussion last week. So, First and Second Timothy and Titus in the New Testament, those books, are known as the pastoral letters of Paul. And the reason they were written uh, by him was to, he wrote them to young pastors so they would know how to conduct their ministries in a way that honors God, that pleases God. Now, you're thinking, okay, great, I'll never read First or Second Timothy or Titus again because I'm not a pastor. Well, that's not what I'm saying at all. It doesn't mean that they hold no value to the layman. In fact, you can read these letters, these three short letters in the New Testament, and you can find out very quickly whether you are in a church that is striving to be biblical at all. And that's how you know, by reading the instructions that, that Paul gave to pastors. Now, so let's look at uh, the first verse of our text that Erica read to us this morning. 1 Timothy 6:17 says, "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy." Now, when when Paul says, "charge them," like he does in this verse, he's telling Timothy how to address the daily lives of actual people who are in the church he oversees. These are real people. These are not, um, you know, hypothetical possibilities, like just in case there's guys like this in your church, Timothy. No, these are real people. And so note that Paul addresses them as the rich in this present age. So what he means is, and let's be clear about this, he's not using, at this point, spiritual language. He means those in Timothy's church who have been unusually blessed in financial and material things. And he says this present age, he's referring to the present age because a proper understanding of the gospel would assure them that when it comes to their eternal station, not their temporal earthly station, but their eternal station, all believers, every one of us are rich. Can I say that again too? I'm having to prom this pump this morning. When it comes to eternal matters, our eternal station before God, every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is rich. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this beautifully. 
I think Pastor Dave, by the way, used this as the benediction last week. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Wow. See, the gospel represents the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. All of heaven's wealth came to earth. And all of God's wealth came to sinners like you and I. What an incredible thing. And so he tells those who are wealthy here and now not to become proud. His word is haughty in their wealth. They mustn't esteem their earthly wealth as a sign of greater favor bestowed on them as opposed to the poorest of the saints. Because whether billionaire or beggar, the one who has Christ has it all. And last week we saw from the scriptures how God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And, and, and we saw how he freely gave us Christ and with him all things as the scripture says. And here he says that Christ richly provides for us everything to enjoy. So if those three scriptures alone, and there's many more, are true in the scriptures, what do you lack if you have Christ? Not a thing. And he says they they must also, not only does he, he say that they shouldn't be proud, but he says they must also not make wealth their salvation. He he puts it like this. Tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And there's two reasons for this. First is, is stated explicitly in the text. And that's because riches are uncertain. Has anyone at any point in your life discovered that the riches you thought you had were very uncertain? I have. The job that was the dream job, gone. Layoffs, got fired. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. Proverbs 23, 4, in the wisdom of Solomon, this is how he put it. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Has anyone ever experienced that? How many times has it been stated by guys like me that you can't take it with you? And you've heard the, the old bumper sticker that's so popular 20 or 30 years ago. He who dies with the most toys dies. And then somebody else came out with a, uh, or he who dies with the most toy wins. And then the other guy came out with a bumper sticker. Who dies with the most, he who dies with the most toys still dies. The most fastidious investor will find themselves stripped naked of all resources at death. You may be the richest person here. You may be the poorest person here. But when you breathe your last, you are going to stand in total equality. Total. Only those clothed with Christ's righteousness will have anything in the next life. Anything. Now, the first thing was explicit. The second thing is implicit in the text. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we've referred to it often in the series. And anything we set our hopes on, as Paul puts it, it becomes our default God which boils down to a passive form of idolatry. Now, you may, and what I'm saying is, let me be very clear, you may confess the right things, you may hang out in the right places, but if Christ isn't your only hope, you are on some level an idolater. You may be a very active idolater, or you may be a very passive idolater, but still, when Christ is not our only hope, we're engaging in idolatry. 
In contrast, Paul says that those who have earthly riches and are yet a part of Christ's church must have lives that are marked by goodness. We always, you know, obviously remember the scriptures like Jesus saying, there are, there's no one good but God alone and, and there's none righteous. Well, we're not talking about internal righteousness. We're talking about but because of the work of the Spirit of God, a goodness that is evident to all. He says it like this in verse 18. They are to do good. This is the rich in this present age. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. They're known, first of all, For good lives that manifest in good deeds. By coupling the idea of good people with good works, Paul is saying that simple church-going morality is insufficient for the wealthy believer. They must be frequently caught in the act of practically relieving the suffering of others. And good works finds an opportunity. How? It finds an opportunity through our generosity. The, the, the good works are expressed in taking some of the blessings that have been bestowed on us, like you did last week, and sharing them freely with those who have little or have nothing, or those who have an extraordinary pressing need, like the Stricklands, or those who need to experience God's love, um, like anybody in your, in your circle, or, those, or, or the church when it is needing to, to function in a way that pleases God. But in objection to this, you might say, well, I get that, Mark. Nothing you've said so far is, is a problem for me. But what you've got to understand, Pastor, I am not rich. And I bet if I said, who's in here that is rich? Not a single hand would go up. And I get it. I would be prone to think that way as well. You may say, I may be one of the poorest people in your congregation. Mark, if you could look in in my bank account, you would be mortified by how little money that I have. But see, here's the problem. When you say, I may be one of the poorest people in the church, you're grading on a curve, and the curve that you're grading on is this church. Or maybe you could even expand it and grade on a curve of this city. Or maybe you could even grade on the curve of this country. You see people with extreme wealth, extreme poverty, and you think, well, I'm closer to the extreme poverty. But I want you to know that of the 15 poorest countries in the world, 14 are in Africa. Not even close here. One is in, is in the Middle East and 14 are in Africa. And the poorest, this has been proven over and over again, the absolute poorest in our country live in comparative luxury to those, uh, to people in those countries who are truly poor, which are devoid of either basic necessities, they can't get basic necessities, running water, you know, food, clothing, shelter, that sort of thing. And they certainly have no government assistance to help them out with, with the, the resources that they need. And yet, so that's true. Do, do we all agree that that's true? This is not the worst things could be. No matter how bad it is, this isn't the worst things they could be. I don't see one single nodding head. That's okay. I know you were thinking, where is he going with this? He's saying, I, I make, you know, no money and I'm going to have to give it all. That's not what I'm saying. Everybody relax. Like I said last week five times, take a deep breath. But let me ask you a serious question. Living in America, working in America, do you hear more people around you at work in this church, in your family, do you hear more of them rejoicing in their blessings or complaining about their lack? If only made just a little bit more money. If only you could get just a little bit better job. If I could only, you know, have a, a, a little bit increased status. And they don't see all the things that God has already given them. Let me ask, let me personalize it. Not what you hear other people saying, but what do you focus on personally? Your blessings? 
There's an old hymn of the church where you sing, count your blessings, name them one by one. It's a really good thing to do. Do you focus on your blessings? And what is it? What is the thing in your soul, in your mind right now that you just wish you could buy that would make you happy? If I had this one thing, I would, my, my happiness quotient would go way up. How do you feel when somebody that you know gets that thing before you do, especially if you never get it? Are you regularly in the pursuit, either literally in the pursuit or emotionally in the pursuit, of better houses, better cars, better clothes, better whatever? And if so, you've missed the fact, the first blessing that you should count outside of Jesus and his salvation is that God has put you in a place where you can be wealthy by worldly standards. The right response to these blessings that every one of us experiences every day when we're awakened to them, when we see that what I'm saying is true, is, is the heartfelt contentment. Say, yeah, I'm okay. Everything's all right. Not going to bed hungry tonight. I have shelter over, over my head. I've got clothes to wear, warm clothes when it gets cold. And this, way, this is how Paul says it, just a few verses from where we started today. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. You see how Paul keeps pointing to a different set of economics than what we use? Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a literally a trap into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. No matter what our economic status, confidence in the gospel enables us, no matter where we're at on the scale, on the curve, confidence in the gospel realizing our wealth in Christ enables us to do good and to be generous, not recklessly, but sincerely and faithfully. The Bible pointed this out a couple weeks ago. Greed is idolatry, but contentment is the pathway of peace for your soul. You would have so much fewer sleepless nights, so many fewer headaches if you could just learn to breathe in the joy of the Holy Spirit, the contentment of God, and just walk in contentment. Everything would be better. It's a pathway to a better life, peace of soul. Not getting more stuff, but being content with what you have. Paul goes further to speak of the inherent benefit of good works which manifest themselves in generosity. He says in verse 19, Thus they are the good works, um, storing up the treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus told us to store our treasures in heaven where thieves don't break in and steal or moths and rust corrupt it. But Paul is saying here something similar. He's appealing to the wealthy of this world, people who understand investing, people who understand risk, and he's giving them the inside tip on a guaranteed return. He's saying that those who live lifestyles of goodness and generosity here will have their treasures secured in heaven's impenetrable, unrobbable banks, their vaults, 
where it will wait for them and they will never, it'll never fail them. Now, so what I, I got some homework for you tomorrow morning. Call up your bank or your investment banker and ask him if he can find a deal so good for you to invest your money in that the money will actually be, that it will follow you beyond the grave. See if he can do that for you. And ask him if, like Jesus, he can not only make sure that your investment follows you beyond the grave, but that that he can guarantee you a return of 60, 30, 60, or 100% on your return. And they will quickly slam the phone down in your ear. See, our problem isn't that we haven't read these things or heard sermons on them, but that we don't truly believe them. If we really believe these things, we wouldn't exhaust ourselves treasure hunting to secure a life that the Bible just simply calls a vapor. A mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. Or like grass, the Bible says, that is here today and beautiful and green and verdant and then next day is thrown into the furnace. And that's the life that we're trying to secure and it's an impossible thing to do. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever said in a moment of luxury or pleasure, maybe a a vacation you were on or or some experience that you had, and you just sit back, hands behind your head, and you go, this is the life. But Paul says here that by laying a good foundation for the future and by the use of good and generous works, we take hold of that which is truly life. What does he mean by that? First, he means that in a very real sense... That this life is an illusion. It's vapor. It's grass. It's built on the misty remembrance of our time in Eden. And now because death has entered this world, the best we can do is string together some sort of meaning by pursuing stuff and status and preference and pleasure. And second, he means that grasping for or clinging to things is a pathetic substitute for the life that God has designed us for. If I can dock my yacht in Hawaii and stock it with all this world calls delightful, but I don't have Christ, I have nothing. Philippians 3, 7, one of, seriously, one of my favorite uh, passages in scripture. I remember when I first began preaching that uh, for like the first 200 sermons I ever preached, I somehow worked Philippians 3 into the sermons. I should have probably read the rest of the Bible, but um, but I'm going to use it. I'm going to go back to that bad habit and I'm going to use it today because listen to these powerful words from the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. No matter what accolades and stuff and all those things that he got meant nothing to him once he had Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, notice what he says there. He's not saying that, oh, Jesus made me lose it all. No. He's saying, I've suffered the loss of all things, but internally, in my own heart, now I look at them, they're garbage. Now, I don't want to offend anybody, but the word that actually is translated so delicately by most of our English translators as rubbish is is actually the Hebrew word, or I'm sorry, the Greek word for dung. And I'll let you kind of connect the dots to our modern vernacular. He's saying, everything that I had that was not Christ was something that you can't say in church. 
See what I'm saying? And he's, say, he's saying that, that and, and he, he counts them as rubbish or dung in order that I might just gain Christ. Once you see with spiritual eyes who Christ is, what he is, that's all you want anymore. The true life is never, listen, I'm going to hopefully disabuse you of an illusion. The true life is never experienced here. You'll never, ever, ever, ever enjoy the the, the fullness of true life. You have a down payment through the Holy Spirit, but you'll never experience the, the fullness of true life here. And it can never be found in the things of this life. Only, only by losing ourselves in Christ can we ever really be satisfied and lay up for ourselves riches that cannot be lost. All right, we gotta, we gotta land this plane, we gotta make it practical. What does it look like to gain Christ and be content with Him? How do we invest in earthly, I'm sorry, heavenly treasure so that we experience life that is truly life like He intends for us to do? Well, it requires that we submit to what the gospel actually demands of us. Now, did I just use the word gospel and demand in the same sentence? I did. And I hope to prove that to you. Last week, we considered Malachi's usage of the word tithe. And there has been more fighting over that word in church history than probably a few others. You know, it's been a big deal. And the word tithe, as you'll recall, means 10%. And, and, uh, and, and so we got to ask ourselves, does God want 10% of our stuff? And can I phrase it differently? Does God need 10% of your stuff. And if we land on the idea that yes, he does, is that the highest ideal of biblical generosity? Well, it might surprise you, and I'll prove it in a moment, to know that in the New Testament, no less than Jesus demands not 10%, not 50%, not even 75%. Can anybody guess how much Jesus requires? 100%. He will only settle. This is non-negotiable. He'll only settle for 100% of you and everything that is yours. And this demand goes far beyond money. Far beyond money. It includes your actions. It includes your thoughts. It includes your affections. We can prove this simply by looking just to the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in all the law was, you'll recall that he said it is to love the Lord with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Jesus does not accept partial payment. Do you remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus? This is, this is, I said this back when we went through this in Mark and, and it's, I think it's one of the most misunderstood passages in the life of Christ. Do you remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do you remember what he said? He asked them to show him a coin, and then he asked them whose inscription is on this coin. And when they answered that it was Caesar's inscription, he laid out for them the terms of the gospel. This was not the terms of taxes. This is the terms of the gospel. And this is what he said, Mark 12, 17. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, how do we know they're Caesar's? They have his face stamped right on them. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, 
the things that are God's. Now, Jesus told us to give Caesar that which bears his image and to do it without a second thought. This raises a question. Whose image is stamped on you? Whose image is stamped on you? Were we created in the image of God? Are we being, according to 2 Corinthians, transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ? Then we must, without a second thought, render to him everything that bears his image. All of it. Holding nothing back. What part of you does not bear his image? Does your thought life not bear his image? Then the Holy Spirit is sanctifying your thought life. Does your time not bear his image? Then the, sanctif- the Holy Spirit is sanctifying your time. But the ideal is that all of us bears his image. And even if you look at it and say, well, that doesn't bear his image, I'm telling you right now, Jesus has laid claim to 100% of it already. And what will you withhold from Christ? Now, we're all familiar with several of Jesus' calls to discipleship uh, that are we're very familiar with. So, for example, Jesus said to the people who were listening to him, he said, take up your cross and follow me. We are very familiar with that. We remember how at the very end he said, go into all the world and make disciples. And, um, and so we're familiar with that. But there's one statement that Jesus made that, quite frankly, we don't preach on much. And we don't hear much from pulpits, unfortunately. And that is Luke 14.33. Write it down. Memorize it. Think about it. Wrestle with it. And it says this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say... You can't be one of the best disciples. He doesn't say that, you know, you can't be, you know, somebody that, that uh, you know, uh, hangs out at the church. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you cannot be my disciple. Anything, anything that I've sectioned off in my life that I say that's mine and that's Jesus disqualifies me to call myself a disciple of Jesus. And this should cause us some concern, I think should raise our concern to say, am I a disciple of Jesus? Jesus says that the surrender of everything, stuff, reputation, fears, insecurities, preferences, past hurts, future plans, all of that is the non-negotiable requirement for anyone who would belong to him. And if we're honest, this is a weight that none of us can bear in our own strength. I have thoughts that are mine all the time. I have stuff that is meaningless that I consider to be mine all the time. And so if we're gonna, if we're going to be sanctified into this ideal of, of surrendering everything to Christ, we have to have the sanctification and the empowerment of the Spirit of God just to begin. And, and you also need the willingness to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, to be honest about the things that you're gripping with white knuckles and the things that you are unwilling to release. So, 
Man, I, I, I like last week, this is why I don't preach on money, because I can sense the tension rising in the room. It's like I expect from any corner of this room for somebody to say, crucify him, you know, or something like that. So let me, let me bring it down. Am I saying that in order to be Christ's disciple, you got to come here every week, and every week you do, you have to empty your bank account, whatever's in there, a penny or a million dollars, every week for the benefit of the church or other charities. I am not saying that at all. What it means to, to uh, you know, relinquish everything to Christ, it means to settle in your mind that every breath, every word, every thought, and every penny that you possess belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. And in love, you will surrender your right to those things. They're no longer yours, they're His. And, and, and you'll do that by being a godly steward of the things he blesses with uh, you with. And always willing with whatever it is, time, money, skills, whatever, you will be willing to do good and to share with those things. It means, first of all, husbands, fathers, providing well for your families. That's how you steward God's stuff. It means not squandering your spare time on frivolous and childish things. It means the willingness to freely give your time or your skill to those who need help. And it means to be as financially generous as you can be at all times to the glory of God. Paul wraps up this passage that Erica read. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Guard the deposit isn't referring to Timothy protecting some store of money or even his own stake in pastoral ministry. Paul says that through the gospel, Timothy has received two priceless things. Number one, he has, re- he has received the eternal truth that was once a mystery and is now revealed in Christ. He has the eternal truth of God. And second, he has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he is encouraged, he encouraged Timothy rather, to not lose sight of those precious gifts. And how do you lose sight of them? By being distracted by lesser things. He told him to steer clear of irreverent babble and contradictions. Contradictions to what? To the Word of God. It's those fads and those trends of the world as they try to make you feel left out because of some thing you don't own or some recognition that you feel like you've been denied. But Paul says that what this world knows can only falsely be called knowledge because Solomon tells us that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And he says that by chasing these earthly material things, the secret knowledge of the Gnostics who think they know what is true and best, though it contradicts God, well-intended believers by chasing these things have swerved out of the lane of truth and have absolutely wrecked their lives. So this isn't some appeal to get more out of you because I'm not done with my ministry, but Paul said, I want to present you perfect to Christ. So my goal in ministry is to get you to the point where you are spotless and perfect and, and you are as close to the 100% ideal of thinking of Christ first before you buy things and think and give things and, and use things and, and, and say things and think things that, that Christ is the motivating factor and you say, Lord, I, w- I do not want to sacrifice my discipleship 
status. And so I'll relinquish everything I have, everything. So this is my prayer. May we determine this morning and wait no longer that Christ has all of us. May we never imagine that if he doesn't, and I don't mean that, that it's not a process, but if we refuse to give him anything, may we never imagine that he has any of us. Some of us who would never give less than 10% of our finances are consistently giving God just a tiny little fraction of every other part of their lives. And like Paul, I want you to know the joy, Philippians 3, losing everything for him because it's not a drudgery. It's not a captivity. It's a joy. It's true freedom. It comes with a great promise. Did you know that? Jesus said this to his own disciples in Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much. God, I, I feel the weight of this message, not the weight of its reception, the weight of your words. God, I still have a, a lengthy inventory of things that I daily believe belong to me. So God, I just repent of that right now before these people. I humble myself. And Lord, I pray that you would give me opportunities this week to lay down things that I have been clinging to, things that I, like a two-year-old brat, said, these are mine. Help me to lay those down, God, that I might have you, that I might suffer the loss of all things and consider them to be even dung, that I might gain Christ. And so, Lord, help me. Help us all, God. Help us not to be condemned by this word, but called up by this word, God. And find ways, Lord God, to honor you with what we have. Help us to receive your grace when we struggle, because we will. Help us to, to look to you, God, to, to God hold nothing back, to surrender everything. God, our opinions, our attitudes, our will to you and to you alone for the singular purpose that you might be glorified through the blessings with which you have blessed us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion workers to come and help us to serve uh, from the Lord's table today. And uh, we're so grateful for your help. Um, I uh, am so grateful for how the Lord has given us this sacrament for the church to experience um, just the unity of becoming one with Christ, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and to be reminded of his sacrifice, his suffering, and to be united to him by the Holy Spirit. But if there's anything in our liturgy that should point to the, the total uh, offering that Christ made for us of giving all, it's this, his broken body and his poured out blood symbolized by the cup and the and the bread. And so um, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, I want to just encourage you to come and partake of this table um, and receive these elements and do it with joy, do it with, with, uh, with contentment and satisfaction like we talked about today. But if you're not, um, 
please refrain. And it's not because, as I say each week, we're not trying to withhold something from you. We're just not saying, well, you're not worthy of what we have. It's, it's that Christ, it just means nothing to you. Christ says, uh, through the Apostle Paul's pen, he says that those who eat and drink of this bread and this cup unworthily, they, they actually eat and drink condemnation on themselves. And so that doesn't mean that you're condemned forever. It means that you need to, to do some business with Jesus and make it right with Jesus and settle how you feel in your life about Jesus. And as you saw today, his demands are high. But if you're ever willing to like just surrender your life and, and, and make that right, then please come talk to me, come talk to Gabriel, and we would love to speak to you and share these things with you. And just know whether you do or not today, we are praying for you. We believe that God has a, an amazing abundance of grace and joy to share with you in your life. So for the rest of you, I'm going to invite you to come forward and receive these elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll share them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup. Now let's give thanks like people that mean it. (laughs) Jesus, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for your goodness to us. Lord, as we talk about the call to give you everything, Lord. We can do it with confidence because we look at this bread and at this cup and we realize that you have already given us everything, God. You've given us everything. So what will we not give back to you? And so, Lord, as we receive this gift of your body and your blood and we are united to your resurrection life, Lord, we pray that you would empower us, Lord, to generously and freely give God, in every way, God, help us to find, as I prayed at the end of my message, many different ways to honor you with our giving. And we thank you for all this. We thank you for this inexpressible gift of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you'll put your hands in receiving position, I want to read this benediction over you. This is the encouragement of the Apostle Paul in Colossians Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do... In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen, you are dismissed.